1: Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jacob Barrett. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Molly Bassett and Natalie Avalos about their new edited volume, Indigenous Religious Traditions in Five Minutes, that came out in September 2022 with Equinox Publishing as part of the Religion in Five Minutes series. Molly and Natalie, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you for inviting us. It's nice to be here. Yeah, thank you.
1: Um, Can each of you just take a minute to introduce yourself? Um, Molly, why don't you start and then we can um, go to Natalie.
0: Sure, thanks. Um, My name is Molly Bassett and I'm an associate professor and chair in the Department of Religious Studies uh, at Georgia State University in Atlanta. And Atlanta is located on the traditional lands of the Muscogee Creek.
2: So I am an assistant professor in the Ethnic Studies Department at CU Boulder and um, I teach Native American and indigenous religious traditions, and we are on the territories of Ute, Cheyenne, and
1: Arapaho peoples. Wonderful. Um, So let's jump in. I'm very excited to talk with you both today about um, such an amazing volume. Um, Can we, for those listeners who might not be familiar with the volume, um, can you give an overview of what um, what just kind of the the contents and the structure of the volume, um, who are the contributors? How are the essays different than traditional academic essays, right? This volume is a little different than a traditional edited volume. Um, It looks a little different, so um, yeah.
2: So the way that it was framed for me, if you don't mind me starting Molly, is, is Molly actually approached me and she said, you know, there's this opportunity. Um, I've been asked to do a volume that's essentially on teaching and how do we teach indigenous um, religious traditions? What what does it look like in the classroom, and how do we address questions that may be coming from students, but that are um, you know kind of popular questions, but provide answers that are short and substantial and they could actually really help direct other scholars, especially other scholars outside of the subfield of indigenous religious tradition. So kind of providing them with a roadmap of how to navigate certain questions, certain topics in this subfield.
0: Yeah, and I I got involved in this project because I'd been teaching from the original volume and ran into Russ McCutcheon, one of the editors at the 2019 AAR. So um, he was at that time developing the series and interested in a volume on indigenous religious traditions. And I came home and there was a contract waiting for me before the winter break. So uh, I tread water for a bit and reached out to Natalie and, I think the, the original volume offers students questions that, like Natalie said, are sort of uh, general interest questions or things people might wonder. Um, we've probably all been in classrooms where a teacher has said there's no dumb question. But if you feel like you're the only person in the room who doesn't know what Lent is or, you know, you name religious tradition or practice, you can feel like it might be a dumb question. And I think this series, one of its um, objectives is to ask some questions that people may have on their minds, but might be hesitant to actually ask out loud. Um, And then, you know, in terms of the, of this volume, um, in the end, we had more than 50 contributors, I think, answer more than 80 questions and it it it, uh, natalie and i um had a lot of fun i i at least had a lot of fun working with natalie we've known each other a long time and we found that we had um we brought to the project skill sets and networks that really complemented one another so there is a breadth of voices in the volume that represent really senior scholars, people like Tink Tinker, who are are giants in our fields, and then very new scholars, people who are not yet ABD even. Um, So I think that that is an advantage of this volume in particular. Um, And then the questions, you know, we sought really to include a breadth of Indigenous traditions, um, like Natalie. Said she works um, in in Native traditions in the Americas and elsewhere, and my work focuses on Native traditions in Mesoamerica. And oftentimes, when people talk about indigenous traditions, the frame of reference might be the Americas or perhaps Australia. But we really sought to include perspectives from all over the world, and you know, encountered some pushback from some people from some scholars who saw their work not as ind- as indigenous religious traditions but in uh, allied fields so it was it was a very interesting process and you know really wonderful to be in touch with so many people who are in religious studies and other fields too
1: yeah i was going to say i think that's something that's so um impressive and important about this al- or about this album about this volume <laughs> um, that there's you know it's there's scholars talking from all different um, ranks and all different levels and all sorts of different institutions, but also different disciplines um, to show that kind of the study of indigenous religious traditions comes from um, kind of this cross-disciplinary project of thinkers in different disciplines, thinking with different methodologies um, and approaches. And I think that's, um, this volume gives, gives a nice little snapshot into that. Um, and we We're yeah.
2: also very invested in trying to get as many Native and Indigenous scholars involved as possible because that's been historically a major problem in our subfield that the representation can be um, so small, and then even with that, just silenced or marginalized. And so, I think that's also why we were trying to, we were pulling, uh, and and reaching out to folks that weren't r- really operating in the subfield traditionally, and and trying to find additional voices, kind of from the margins. And I w- I was really pleased with with the folks we were able to find to contribute. And we did actually even um, get a contribution from Christopher Jocks, who hadn't really been working in in the subfield, quote unquote, subfield in a while, even though he's been teaching native studies probably for the last like 40 plus years. But um, he had no longer been active at AAR, but he had written some, pretty provocative foundational pieces in the nineties. And I think to get some contributions to him felt like a really big win for the volume. And they were, to me, they're among my favorite pieces.
1: Yeah. That's amazing. Um, one of the things that you say in the, um, preface of the volume is that it was important to you to find a balance, um, between answering everyday questions, um, that are racially charged head on um, kind of those, those questions that, you know, those blunt questions students might ask, um, you know, how do you strike the balance between answering those questions and shifting the questions completely to get us to different answers? Um, can you talk a little bit about that and why that was important to this project um, versus just trying to, you know, shift the answers that, that um students are giving in the, the essays?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think um there was there's already a lot of loaded um questions that were coming to us because I think there's so many stereotypes about native and indigenous people. And so we were already dealing with those layers of primitivism and other sorts of um problematic assumptions that I think operate around Native America and beyond, right? Other indigenous peoples. And so we were really trying to figure out how might we address a question, something like, you know, what is a spirit animal given that the spirit animal doesn't exist, right? But I think it's a, a question that a student might legitimately ask and wonder, you know, so, sort of like Molly is saying, Uh, providing a space for them to be able to think about these things that they've heard in popular culture. And how do we, um, so we thought it would be helpful. And we had gotten some suggestions from authors, even of like, how might I reframe this? And, and I would like to speak to this question this way. And, And so it became a real dialogue between you know, us and the authors, and they had a lot of agency to shape. We, we encouraged them to shape their questions in a way that they saw would be, um, that they thought might be more appropriate, you know, but also that <laughs> thinking about some questions, I think there was a question in another vol- volume that kind of assumes, um, a racially charged dimension, you know, like why, why are there so many radical Muslims? Right. And, and to me, I thought, I don't think we can really include a question that has um, an outright racialized assertion like that and, and one that's harmful. And so I wanted to be able to, um, Yeah, I wanted us to be able to have some control over what we might include, how it should be presented, and ultimately let the authors lead us to, you know, let us, let them lead us into a place that they were more comfortable with, especially the Native and Indigenous scholars. I really trusted the, the, the voices of those that were writing, you know? Yeah.
0: And to provide another example and then um, kind of a digression, but I hope to make the connection back. One of the questions that we sent out in the invitation, like, you know, would you like to join us? Here are some sample questions that the volume might consider was a question that dealt with the different spellings of voodoo. And that question came to my mind, because around that time, I had heard a presentation in in a teaching scenario on that very topic. And I thought, oh, yeah, like, this is a question people might have. Um, And we received some constructive criticism about that question and reframed it. And voodoo appears in the volume in a few questions, but differently than that original question. And part of what happened behind the scenes and here's the digression is i think we did some of the work that would happen in the classroom right if a student asks that question in the classroom an instructor might reframe it and say okay well let's think about why you're framing it that way or asking it that way Um, and i heard recently i have kids in elementary school and i heard their teacher one of their teachers talking about reading instruction and that it used to be um it, it used to be thought that if we just read aloud to kids, they'll eventually get it and understand and know how to do it. And that makes some sense. But so much happens internally when you're reading. And now research shows that teachers need to voice that. They need to say, you know, stop and say, OK, well, what can you what do you pick up on that's happening in the story, or what do you think might come next? You know, help help helping young readers learn how to anticipate where an author's going, and these are the very skills we want our students to develop too. But maybe instead of with, uh, I don't know, like Harry Potter or whoever it is, like more complicated theoretical texts and so forth. So, I think part of that work that we were doing with the contributors behind the scenes. Is, is that reframing into language that is, um, you know, more culturally sensitive? And so, so we're presenting the questions and the answers from the get-go using language that is comfortable and that works for the people who, who are working in the field rather than like you said at the beginning of the question, Jacob, that sort of blunt instrument of what's the difference between a religion and a cult or whatever. We're already thinking through the language in the question.
2: And careful, I think really not to even provide any space for a racialized assumption to persist. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, no, I think, and I think that um, the spirit of collaboration that you were talking about in the volume is um, really clear throughout that it was, um, you know, I, I think I think that was a, a big success. So congratulations on that. It, it shines through the volume that voice, it, lots of voices were considered and lots of voices were heard. And um, it really feels like a, a project shaped by the contributors, which... Um, I think is really, really important. Um, so Molly, you you mentioned um, earlier that, you know, you kind of got um, pulled into this project and decided to do this, um, you know, by meeting um, or by, you know, talking with Russell McCutcheon, who's the one of the founding um, editors of the series. And then, you know, reached out to Natalie. How, I guess my question is a little like, how did the volume come to be? Like, why did you say, yes, sign me up to do this? (laughs) Why did you say, um, and Natalie, why did you agree to this? Why did you say, yeah, I think this volume is important. I think this um, needs to exist and it's a project that I want to embark on.
0: That's a great question. I mean, I think uh, part of it is, I've been teaching our um, sort of mid-level survey of world religions and using a decolonizing approach. And that's how I was using the original volume in that course um, to the extent I could. So the opportunity to work on a volume that would further that project um, and and potentially help, help colleagues who are also teaching, you know, who are in context where students want to know about world religions, um, but it, our our own training as as scholars, especially of indigenous religions, um, predisposes us to recoil from that perhaps, or to at least want to you know do more than give them the rolodex of like okay now I know about Islam or now I know about Native American traditions or or what have you. Um, so that that's that was part of my interest just to see if we could you know if we could if we could do it and it was important to me too, that indigenous religious traditions be represented in the series. Um, At that point, the other volumes that Russ mentioned, um, were there was one in the works on Buddhism, I think Judaism, um, maybe pagan traditions at that point or new age traditions. I'm not sure how that ended up settling out. Um, Yeah. So just to be included And, and then, uh, I feel like one of the strengths of one of my mentors who ended up contributing, to V. Carrasco, is to bring people together. And I felt like this was an opportunity to do that. I mean, I really like working with other people and to have the opportunity to work with Natalie was so wonderful and other people in the volume. Some are people I knew, many are people Natalie knew, some we knew in common. So just to have this project up and running And then the last thing I'll say is that we did this entirely during the pandemic. I mean, we signed a contract in the spring of 2020, and I think that we felt like it was work we could ask colleagues to do because these questions are things that are in these individuals, it's their wheelhouse. Like I kind of pitched it to folks as... You could sit down and in two afternoons draft it, revise it, and be done. Like, you know, this, you know, the answer to this question that well. So, it felt very doable at a time when like everything was heavy and to have a little project. I mean, it's a big project, but to have something up and running that people felt, you know, connected through and something to look forward to, that was, that, those were good feelings during that time.
2: Yeah, I think we were. I mean, I know I was really interested in trying to provide a space for indigenous religious traditions to be more legible in the field. I feel like they, they can be uh, marginalized in a lot of other scholars, given the kind of world religions um, paradigm that has been operating within religious studies, We we might I think a lot of scholars knew a little bit about the subfield, but I thought, well, how great to be able to write a book that's more geared towards non-experts, right? So how can we fill in the blanks for some of these non-experts and, and also show that we have a really robust subfield and it's there's so much, um, especially beyond just like, kind of quote, unquote, Native America, you know, thinking about Northern uh, Native America, but the Americas more largely, uh, Oceania, Asia, you know, Africa, like there are so many places that in in indigenous religious life is popping up and operating and and then to be able to connect the dots between them and create kind of like a coherent thread that links. I, I was excited to do that
1: yeah you know we've talked a little bit um uh, this this thread of teaching um has come up several times in our conversation about how um the volume is designed as kind of a teaching tool um but also designed around kind of the idea of you know when a when a student raises their hand and asks this question um you know like that that's kind of the format of these this volume um How would, you know, Molly, you said that you were teaching the uh, original version uh, or the first volume um, in a a world religions course. Um, How do you see this volume being taught? Um, What, you know, it can be taught any number of ways successfully, I think. But how how, would you hope this volume um, gets used as a as a teaching tool?
0: That's a great question. I was, you know, I was thinking about that this morning and and preparing to talk with you all. I I used the first volume as a model. And so um, the program here at Georgia State is an applied religious studies program. And uh, part of the shift in my own teaching has been to think about how students can use the content knowledge and the skills that they're learning in our classes to, to do things that are maybe more than write a traditional paper. I feel like that as, as an end result has a lot of utility for a lot of students, but not all students. And um, in the end ends up, they write it, I read it, I send it back, maybe they pin it on the fridge, but that's the end of the life of the project for lots of undergraduates at least and so i began teaching from the first volume and the final project was that each student chose a question and answered the question and then we made our own book as a pdf so at the end of the course everybody had a copy of everyone's questions and they had a thing they could take and use if they want to you know it was more of a a, of a collaborative project, there is that little bit of peer pressure. My friends might see what I write, and so maybe that improved the quality a bit. Um, So I think, you know, that's one way to teach it. I think, too, that, you know, you you could take a question, have the students read the answer, and then have them write a different answer. A lot of the questions are answered in ways, you know, that there can be more than one answer to the question. So I think that you could also practice um, sort of diversifying answers. Um, I'll teach in the fall a uh, graduate level class on world religions for professionals and plan to use excerpts from the volume um, pieces you know, to model for professionals what questions might arise in the context of being in medical professions or in law or teaching. And then how do you find the answer? Like that, that to me is the important skill that students can learn in a class like that or from a text like this is, you know, the the Rolodex only goes so far because you're going to be out in the world having to navigate diversity and questions are going to arise in really particular contexts that I can't answer, but you'll need to know how to answer them. So that, you know, getting to that skill set, I think is one path an instructor can take with a volume like this.
2: For me, I was really interested in using some of the essays, um, especially the ones around land and place, as um, an opportunity to trouble the complexity of land and place as a site of uh, religious life for students, just to show like okay, there are these three short essays and they're telling us some overlapping but also some distinct things. And so I think it's really an opportunity. So I'm using it in my uh, Native American religious traditions uh, course, my undergrad course. And one of the real goals there is how do you create nuance? Because I think there are so many... uh, times or there's so many um, ways in which native religious life gets so deeply oversimplified, you know, with like this older animist paradigm of like, oh, you know, native people, they just see spirit in everything. And, And it's so how might these essays really ground some of these ideas and provide you with details that are also, you know, tribal nation distinct, regional distinct, and fill in so much more uh, colors and waves and and just complexity for students. And that's what I think can be really beneficial. That's what I'm doing so far at least.
1: Yeah, well, one of the things that you said earlier, um, Natalie, was that, you know, that these essays are short but substantial. And I think that's such the the perfect way to describe them because, you know, they are they're only um, a few pages, and so I think, you know, and they're very accessible. You know, they're not um, ridiculously jargony. They're not super dense. Like it feels breezy to read, but you get to the end of them and you say, "Wow, I," you know, like that was actually like a really sophisticated short um, answer to this question. And I think, um, you know, this volume is, you can pick up this volume and read it cover to cover and have a great picture of such a diverse dynamic um, field um, that covers lots of different um, groups and areas and topics. And um, But I think it also serves as, you know, as much as it serves as a teaching tool, I think it also serves as a kind of like a professional tool for um, for other teachers, you know, for professors who might end up with a student in their class who you know raises their hand and asks one of the que- these questions, and the the person doesn't know how to answer it, or the you know all of a sudden the person is having to teach a course that their training wasn't in, you know, or and and that these these topics might be coming up, and so I think it really serves as such a important, valuable resource um, to the mm-hmm. field. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, and just to build on that point to have, you know, the expert answering the question and then also recommending additional readings, that piece I think is a really useful tool to instructors too. Every now and then, you know, a friend on social media will say, just like you said, oh, no, I'm teaching this class and I'm trained in, you know, ancient whatever. And this is contemporary whatever. So to be able to turn to a volume like this or anyone in the series and see what an expert who knows about that new thing you're teaching has to say and where else they would point you, I feel like is really helpful. And it was fascinating to see, you know, some people had web references. Some people recommended mostly things they'd published. And one person I think recommended an article in 17 magazine. So, you know, there really is, a you can learn about indigenous religious traditions from lots of places. It's not that you need to go to like the Oxford encyclopedia to, to get, to get the information that you're seeking.
1: Yeah. And I think, um, one of the things that you said, Natalie, in your last um, your last answer was about how this volume um, troubles the idea that indigenous religious traditions are only North American religious traditions, um, and that North American indigenous groups. Um, when I picked up the volume, I was surprised um, to see that there was representation from um, oh across the world. You know, groups on you know chap or essays on. Africa or Japan, um, India, the Pacific, you know, there were, there was coverage of indigenous groups all over. Was that something that was just, did that come out naturally as the volume was coming together? Um, or did the two of you say, you know, this is something that we really want to address and tackle and, um, expand. And so let's like, let's figure out how to cultivate this.
2: Yeah, I think that was very intentional. You know, we wanted to, we really wanted to have representation from folks that were, uh, you know, active in the field, and and probably the bulk of the folks active in the field were native North America, and to me. It's important to expand and think about Native America as the Americas, you know, the entire North and South America. But also just that there's already so much conversation happening, especially in a contemporary moment among Indigenous peoples from other parts of the world. You know, I think stewardship movements, Standing Rock and in other sense have uh, visibilized some of that network, and it's helped to strengthen some of that network. And I thought, well, it I, let's reach out to folks. And, and Molly, you know, was of the same mind. Let's reach out to folks that are working on, you know, like Japan, or, or uh, you know, we were hoping to get um, some scholarship uh, around like Sami people even, or like Maori folks. and And there was some, definitely some disappointment that we couldn't get all the representation that we wanted, but I'm happy with what we got for sure.
0: And maybe that opens the door down the road for a revised volume. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Indigenous religious traditions in five more minutes.
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) There's plenty of material for sure.
1: Yeah. Um, So just kind of wrapping up, is there an essay or a few essays in the volume that um, are your favorites or, or ones that you're excited about people seeing that you think are particularly fun or interesting or ones that you think, you know, this is a this is an important essay that I think, you know, needs to be in there. Obviously, you know, you were the editors of this volume and worked with, you said over 50 contributors. So every every essay I think is important, but um, are there any that stand out to you as, um, yeah, any that stick out?
0: There are two I would point out. Um, the question that Abelardo de la Cruz answers is what motivates Nawas to practice their religion of el costumbre. And Abelardo had just finished or was just finishing his PhD. And I've known him for my entire career, even longer than that. He was my Nahuatl teacher when I was a graduate student. So he was even younger than I was. And, um, you know, to see the evolution of his career and to be able to include him in the volume and continue our working relationship this way was really wonderful. And, you know, he's someone who brings a very important perspective as an indigenous scholar, you know, first generation, now English speaker, um, first generation college student in his family. So uh, having him in the volume is was especially wonderful. And then uh, the other one I'll, I'll mention is the question that Ross Michael Brown answers, how can spiritual traditions create indigenous traditions in new places? Mm-hmm. And um, Michael's a was a brand new colleague of mine here at Georgia State. And in fact, I heard him give the job talk and the volume was pretty late in development and said, Natalie, you know, if, if we can squeeze in one more, uh, I think that his work creates complexity around the idea that indigenous traditions are rooted to place, because in fact, lots of, I mean, many, many, many indigenous people have been displaced and have recreated their traditions in new places and not places of their own choosing most of the time. So to have him contribute to the volume was, you know, also wonderful to include a new colleague and, you know, on this material in particular, in particular.
2: You know, I would say that one of the points that was key for us was just troubling the category religion, and we have multiple essays around that. and And I really appreciate, of course, the one from Chris Jocks. Um, why do some indigenous people insist that what they practice is not religion? But you know, this issue is spoken to um, by folks like Graham Harvey and Tisa Wenger even uh, troubled by Phil Arnold. So we have actually an opportunity <laughs> for multiple scholars, um, many of them senior, to to take on and, and help us reframe and rethink. And I, I think it provided such uh, a robust cluster of essays to do that. And again, to almost see the many perspectives and um, help us denaturalize, I think, some of the assumptions that we, we may enter um, indigenous religious traditions with, right? That, uh, especially those that are not working in the subfield. And so I was really happy about that. Um, I also was really thrilled to see some of the connection between religious life and political life uh, the other essay that I really appreciated around that was the one from uh, Marie Aluholani Brown on ancestors, you know, um, the kind of role that ancestors play, the relationship also that politics, you know, can, can religious life be political? I think that's really important for us to connect those dots um Stacey Swain's essay, I really enjoyed what is the relationship between indigenous religion and sovereignty. And to me that was so key to be able to talk about. Um, because religious life is not it doesn't exist bounded and apart from these other dimensions of life. So I was really happy to see that conversation, that thrust um gain momentum there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I think I think um, the arguments put forward in this book and kind of the intervention and the troubling um, of kind of a homogenous indigenous tradition that's like mystical and spiritual and ancient and floats above it all, right? Like I think this volume in really um, strategic and tactical, but accessible ways like gets into the weeds of that and, and troubling, yeah. like you said, the the natural you know how naturalized some of those ideas are Um,
2: and moving away from that exoticized romanticized um approach that i think still operates and, and functions uh quite a bit in in religious studies and so yeah grounding it much further
1: yeah well thank you both so much for um taking the time to talk about this volume with me um, today. Are there any last thoughts that you want to give on, give on the volume?
2: I would say this was a real labor of love and it made me realize at least how much I love talking about these subjects and how much I love um, empowering people with knowledge, empowering people with new perspectives. And that, you know, ultimately, I think that was one of the goals. To me, that's that's a really a decolonial goal. Like, how do we challenge prim- primitivism? How do we challenge these racialized assumptions? How do we reframe? How do we provide a space for uh, Native agency how do we provide a space for scholars to be um, informed and empower their students and create spaces in the classroom for uh, native voices to be valued, native perspectives to be valued and understood as, as legitimate perspectives, <laughs> right? And not something that just like exists in the past, not not these you know romanticized. Uh, overly, overly saccharine, overly simple ideas, and and really bringing this world that is a very dynamic world in its complexity, in its you know globalness to life. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I agree with Natalie. It was uh it was a really important project from the beginning and. And one I couldn't have done without her. I can't imagine. I can't imagine it it having happened with, without Natalie's uh, co-editing the volume, without us working together. And I I also appreciate you having this conversation with us today because I think the thing I miss is the conversation around the questions. You know, I think that's when we talk about teaching the book that's what you get in the classroom, but that's that's what I've missed since the book has been published is I've actually missed talking to Natalie and the contributors and like, you know, the back and forth. So um, yeah, thank you. And I, you know, look forward to hearing how the book is received by students and colleagues and yeah.
1: yeah. Well, thank you both for being here on the podcast. It's, it's been an honor talking to you, so yeah.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you.